Hi, I'm Karim Khan and I'm the editor of British Journal of Sports Medicine. This is the fourth in a series of podcasts uh, from the BJSM and I'm speaking with Paul McCrory about the implications of the Zurich Concussion Conference for the experienced doctor. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with Paul McCrory, who, together with Yuji Dorak, edited the BJSM supplement on concussion in sport. This came out of the Zurich Concussion Conference, and there are two other podcasts on this BJSM site. Um, one is an overview of the concussion supplement by Paul, and the other is targeted to junior doctors. But now I'm going to talk to Paul about the implications of the Zurich conference for senior doctors, for experienced doctors who are very familiar with concussion and management of elite athletes. Paul, can you just introduce yourself for the for the listener, please, and uh, just share your some of your previous experience in concussion and sport? Um, sure. I'm a neurologist and sports physician from Melbourne, Australia. Um, I've been involved in um, concussion research for about 20 years. Initially came out of my interest as a as a team physician working for a national football team and then with my neurology background and sports medicine background um, I pursued that with academic research which I continue to do so I've had a long-standing interest in this area and was involved and have been involved in the various con um, concussion consensus meetings which have been sponsored by the IOC, FIFA and International Ice Hockey Federation. Thanks, Paul. And we'd encourage um, those who are broadly interested to well, – this is for the senior doctors – so you might want to listen to Paul's overview of the concussion in, port, in sports supplement, um, explaining why different papers in that supplement um, are valuable. But right now we're just going to focus on the actual consensus statement and what the implications are of that for the senior experienced doctors. So we're thinking of doctors who already work with teams and um, are very experienced. Paul, did you want to sort of – give an opening to, to those uh, listeners? Sure. Um, for those who, who haven't um, heard the other podcasts, the Zurich meeting was held in November 2008 um, and basically it was a formal NIH-style consensus meeting where we had 28 different panellists from around the world who uh, were involved in the, the process. But the process with a consensus meeting is that the research and academic questions are developed by a committee the, each of the areas, each of the questions that are developed are then subject to a formal systematic review process. That information is presented at a public meeting. Following the public meeting and the discussions that have occurred, a group of panellists um, then go off and write the guidelines uh, based on all that information, their pre-reading, um, plus the discussions that have occurred. Now, in this case, the Zurich Statement um, has been published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine as well as 14 other journals around the world. But the British Journal has also published all the background papers, the systematic reviews and so forth, which set the scene for the paper, the outcome paper itself. Um, the outcome paper also includes two sideline tools, one for lay people, one for medical um, staff, which provide a structure for the overall assessment and documentation of the injury. So it's a fairly complete um, process and those who are interested have the, have the ability to not only read the um, summary statement but also all the background papers which go through all the evidence and the levels of evidence in a lot more uh, detail. So that's the background to the process. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I think just uh, for those of you who listen to the other two podcasts, if you bear with us, we'll just take, you know, 
one more minute, perhaps, Paul, just to introduce the SCAT2 to this um, experienced doctor group who might be busy and might be just clicking on this podcast alone. Um, the SCAT2 is one of the tools that was um, developed by the meeting. This was based on the original SCAT, which is the Standardised Concussion Assessment Tool, uh, developed after the Prague meeting in 2004. Based on um, the research that was done, this is all discussed in the British Journal Supplement in the abstracts, based on the research that was done, validating and looking at the sensitivity of the tool, it evolved with some more um, fine-tuning into what's known as the SCAT-2. And this includes a um, symptom list and symptom severity scale, um, a cognitive assessment strategy, and a physical examination strategy, including particularly balance and coordination assessment. These are all scored. And the tool itself also includes the SAC, the Standardised Assessment of Concussion, um, the MADX questions and the GCS, the Glasgow Coma Scale, as part of the overall SCAT2 assessment. So a single assessment form allows you to um, document all those different aspects of Brain, uh, brain function assessment um, in that setting. Many US um, people will be familiar with the SAC and one of the uh, people involved in the process was Mike McRae who was the original author of the SAC. So um, he was consulted at all levels to make sure that what we had was exactly what was in the original SAC document. So for those who are familiar with that, this is an evolution and more comprehensive assessment. It enables um, medical staff to record all the information uh, and um, this can be, of course, incorporated in the medical record, uh, both at the time of the injury and for serial follow-up. Thanks, Paul. So let's jump into management uh, implications. So as an experienced team doctor, um, what's different now uh, from for me um, compared with before the Zurich meeting? Well, um, broadly speaking, the approach is similar to, to the Zurich meeting. We've highlighted the diagnostic issues. We've highlighted the investigations and the role that they play, particularly the research um, and experimental investigations which are on the horizon. So particularly for elite, elite doctors, and so forth, they'll be interested in what's coming and how, you know, genetics and um, high-end electrophysiology testing um, uh, will have a role to play and discusses all those sort of aspects, even if at the moment that's not at the stage where it's going to change the acute management. And finally, we've also re-emphasised the graduated return-to-play protocol um, and gone through that. What has changed from the last iteration of this document four years ago is that We've removed the terms um, simple and complex concussion, which were used to separate concussion that uh, lasted less than and more than uh, seven days, respectively. The, um, although all the panellists felt that it was a useful concept, we couldn't agree that the terminology was correct. And so rather than, um, rather than sort of... Uh, take this approach, what, what we changed this time was to say, well, concussion follows a, a, a fairly quick recovery time frame in most people. 95% of injuries recover in five to seven days. However, there are a number of modifying factors clinically, such as a burden of symptoms, a long duration of symptoms, a severity, prolonged loss of consciousness in more than one minute, concussion, uh, concussive convulsions, 
multiple injuries close together in time and so forth, a number of modifying factors which would then influence your management. And these are the things that, particularly in elite sport, that you need to be very careful of because often you're dealing with sports that have high incidence of concussion broadly and most athletes in their career in those sports often sustain a number of concussions. So knowing that these are the things that need to be looked at and measured um, at least provides a framework to assist in that regard. <coughs> the other conceptual issue that was discussed at, at some length was the role of same-day return to play. And I think it's worth sort of highlighting that particularly because it was felt by all the panellists that both elite and non-elite athletes need to be managed in the same strategy. There was nothing different about the elite brain that would make it recover in any quicker or any different fashion to somebody who is just a community athlete. But we did highlight the fact that what elite sport has is additional resources which are not available to the community athlete. So access to neuropsychologists, uh, you know, fairly promptly, detailed neuroimaging, neurosurgeons and so forth mean that um, an athlete can have a more intense assessment in a shorter time frame than may be available to non-elite or community athletes. What this has the potential to do then is to enable um, the team physician to document recovery a lot more quickly. So rather than just take a, a general thing that people take about five to seven days to recover and therefore you know, may miss the following week or, or that sort of rule of thumb type approach. This, By having additional resources, it means that you can actually work out when somebody recovers uh, pretty much to the hour and then plan your return to play strategy appropriately. So in some cases, people do recover on the day of the injury and that means potentially they could play again, providing you can document this process. And as I said, it's this additional resources that are available at the elite level that enable this process to occur more quickly. It's not that the brain's recovered more quickly in that setting, it's just simply that you're able to document the process more accurately. Um, but the basic return to play strategy will still follow the same broad principles, that is full clinical and cognitive recovery before return to play. Um, it, it's worth just saying one more point on that because there is some evidence at both college and high school level uh, in the US that where athletes are allowed to return to play on the same day, delayed um, neuropsychological deficits post-injury are seen. And this has implications, particularly in the management of junior athletes. So for that reason, um, although we talk about same-day return to play in the elite setting, that would not apply to those who are under 18, those at high school or collegiate level. In those situations, even though the resources may well be available, particularly at um, you know, Division I colleges in the US, you certainly would not return to people using the same strategy. Yeah, thanks for that, Paul. And um, am I right in saying that that's discussed in more detail in the article on return to play guidelines for concussed child athletes? That is. And also there's a, a paper um, whose lead author is Margot Patukian talking about the difference between elite and non-elite athletes and the strategies available to the, to the different groups. Okay. So in the BJSM supplement, that's on page I-51 for the kids and um, I-28 for Margot Patukian's article. So, Paul, really to summarise, you're saying the trajectory of the brain's recovery is the same between the elite athletes and the uh, non-elite athletes. Uh, the million-dollar brain doesn't know it's meant to be playing next week. But, That's right. But uh, the reason you can act 
the reason the decision to return to play might be different is that the clinician can identify where that brain is at more accurately. Is that reasonable? That's right. Um, unfortunately, when you when a lot of people, lay people and um, doctors not involved in that area, all they see is that an athlete goes back on the same day as the injury. They don't see the back office stuff. They don't see all this assessment occurring. And so they immediately assume, well, if the million-dollar athlete on TV went back on the same day, my athlete can do it at, at local level. As I, as I said, I just want to emphasise that all that expertise in the back office um, is really important in making those decisions. So if you don't have that, then you certainly don't have the luxury of returning people early. So then to um, close off on return to play, and then we'll go back um, to some baseline assessment things, um, is there anything else for the elite uh, doctor, you know, the doctor who's experienced in terms of any new things on return to play or any other messages you'd have for our colleagues who are at the higher echelons of, of this work? Um, no, the, the, the messages are the same. Full clinical and, re and cognitive recovery is required. Um, at the elite level, that's normally done with the assistance of neuropsychologists or at least neuropsychological testing. Um, but documentation of that process is really important. Um, the, the same stepwise rehab process um, occurs, but remember at the elite set setting you often have strength and conditioning coaches and physiotherapists and other groups who, who assist in that um, thing as well. So it is a multidisciplinary um, approach, um, but the broad principles are still the same. Thanks, Paul. And actually, you know, just mentioning that resistance training issue, why don't we just talk about that for a second? Because integrated return to play protocol, that'd be return to play protocol, um, it doesn't actually talk about weight training. So are there any special concerns for weight training um, for people after concussion? There, there are some concerns because um, weight training, uh, particularly um, if it's not done correctly, you know, they valsalva in effect, can increase the intracranial pressure, which again can exacerbate some symptoms, particularly headache. If you have a look at the table um, related to the graduated return to play, we don't actually bring in um, resistance training until what we call level four, non-contact training drills. Um, I'm not sure whether you have that in front yeah. of you. Yeah, no yep. thanks. That's, uh, but you'll um, see it says may, may start progressive resistance training at that level. Yeah, and that's page 79 for the listener who's following the BJSM version, but it's also on the SCAT 2 um, yep. on page 4. Yeah, so the the overall strategy is you start aerobic exercise first. So you increase their heart rate and, and their um, aerobic fitness aspects first. Then you start doing coordination and movement drills then you'd bring in resistance training. So again, it's a stepwise process, which which adds a progressive element to um, their fitness um, using that that broad strategy. <clears throat> but you certainly wouldn't allow them just to sit in the weight room and do stuff, you know, while they're supposed to be resting. Rest in the recovery setting means complete physical and cognitive rest. Now the cognitive rest. I've had people discuss that quite a bit. Uh, I've heard people discuss that. Going, how can you? you know, really cognitively rest is watching television, cognitive rest, you know, um, things that we like to do. What are, I'm sure you've discussed that. So can you share some thoughts on that, please? Yeah, in, in some ways this is the hardest thing because you've told somebody to rest and you assume because they go home they're actually resting. But what we find, um, particularly with kids, is they're often home playing video games, they're watching uh, DVDs, they're text messaging their friends um, and so forth. And 
all of these these cognitive demands in that early in that early time frame will slow down recovery. So it's important to emphasize with your athlete that not only do they rest physically, but they rest cognitively. And in the early stage, that just means going home and um, sleeping or just uh, doing as little as, as possible in order to give the brain a chance to recover. Just because you can't see an abnormality on the outside doesn't mean that they don't need to rest. And again, this needs to be highlighted in detail for kids because this is where we see it um, more marked because um, those sort of cognitive stresses, particularly text messaging and stuff, they would see that as just part of normal life and not necessarily part of a, a, a need to change in the recovery time frame. So again, complete rest means complete rest. The brain needs to rest to recover. Sure, but Paul, um, without being difficult here, um, I'm thinking the, the practical advice. I mean, you said what they shouldn't do, so don't text and, you know, but I mean, I'm saying to think of a movie where there's sensory deprivation, they're in the white, you know, space and they've got to do Zen meditation or something. I mean, what do you actually say to the patient? And why don't you take us through what you would, your words when you're talking to a young person who you're trying to get to cognitively rest? Yeah, I think if, if you see a lot of people concussed, what you find in the first couple of days anyway is they feel so shabby that they all they really want to do is sleep. They all, all they can do without sort of bringing on headache and bringing on dizziness and so forth is just totally rest themselves. And so they kind of know that, that you know, intuitively that that's, that's what they've got to do. Um, it's often just a matter of just reinforcing that and saying, you know, this means no DVDing, this means no movies, this means, you know, really resting. Um, no partying with your friends and all the rest of it. So for some footballers, this needs to be spelt out in very simple terminology. Um, and other times they, they kind of get it relatively quickly. So I, I, what I tell them is, you know, I'm going to see them tomorrow or the next day or whatever the review time frame would be. And until I see them, they're not to do anything. Not to run, not to, to do weights, not to swim, not to go for a walk. They need to physically rest and they need to, to rest their brain. So if they say, well, what can I do? Like you're talking about sleeping though, you know, and if I'm awake, what can I do? Um, there's not much you can do apart from lying around in the first few days. And it's probably the first 48 hours or, or 72 hours that are the critical time frame in this regard when the brain is still really struggling in terms of um, recovery. We see their balance is impaired when we test it in that sort of time frame and we see the maximal sort of cognitive impairment in that time frame. But that's in, in, the, in the what we used to call a simple situation, the ones who are going to recover in, in short order. There are people, however, who do have prolonged symptoms who will need rest and, and much longer recovery periods. And this can be incredibly frustrating for athletes who, whose whole life is about doing physical things. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so all you can do is just reinforce that message again and again, as difficult as it sounds. Now, should we move on to just the baseline testing issue? Because in the with the doctors we're talking about, many of them have resources to do baseline testing. I know that many are doing it now. There's been a, a trend. So I guess my question would be, have you seen a trend in people in elite sport and experienced doctors doing baseline testing? And are there any new findings from Zurich about that? No, I mean, we, we've reinforced the need for baseline testing now since the very first meeting um, back in 2000. 
And I think that message is well and truly out there. I would be surprised if there are many elite teams around the world in these football codes who are not doing some sort of baseline testing. Um, the tools that are out there now are very simple. Um, they can be done by non-neuropsychologists. Non they can be downloaded from the web. Um, so they're relatively easy to access. Um, they're relatively cheap, particularly in the elite uh, sports setting where you know athletes um, can be worth tens or, in some cases recently, hundreds of millions of dollars in transfer fees. So protecting the brain should be just part and parcel of the the normal pre-participation sort of screening process that's done with all these athletes. So um, there are a number of computer programs around which are used in that setting. We know that if you've got somebody who's injured, comparison to their baseline performance is the best measure that we have. Um, and at elite sport where time is critical, where you're trying to return people as early and as accurately and safely as possible, you really need to be able to compare to the, their own performance, not to population normals, which may be very broad and, and variable. So, yes, all elite sport and all high-risk sport, from a concussion point of view, should certainly be screening their athletes pre-season. And uh, respecting the people who've listened to the other two podcasts, uh, I'll alert someone listening to this podcast alone that you talked about the different types of screening in uh, what we're calling the second podcast, the one for the junior doctors. Um, Paul, that's anything else on assessment um, for the junior for the experienced doctor? It's something that came out of Zurich on the assessment side, uh, concussion symptoms and other forms of assessment. No, just just harking back to the neuropsychology thing. I think the important or two important points to come out of it is that neuropsychology is simply one part of the assessment. It's an aid to the decision making. It's not the um, sole basis of management. And the second point is that although neuropsychologists may be the best people to interpret a formal neuropsychological assessment, the tools that are available now, particularly the web tools, are not necessarily psychological tools. They're available um, for individuals as well. So they don't necessarily need a lot of additional resources. Of course, if you're at a team where you've got a neuropsychologist, they would obviously be involved in this assessment. But even where, where that doesn't exist, uh, medical staff can still interpret um, these tests. So, um, you know, that resource issue is certainly um, something that is achievable in this day and age. In terms of the other tests that were mentioned um, in Zurich, we talked about the new neuroimaging strategies, new MR strategies, balance assessment, genetic testing, the various biomarkers, um, both blood and cerebral spinal fluid, electrophysiology and so forth. Um, all of these things are experimental and they're certainly on the horizon uh, for the elite cutting edge type um, athletes. But as I said, the... Um, Background papers in the British Journal of Sports Medicine supplement kind of detail the information and the literature in this regard. So for those elite sport doctors who are interested in that, they've certainly got access to that through the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I wouldn't mind just one clinical sort of case to finish with because it, you know, it's uh, this issue of multiple concussions. Players had three concussions and they're deciding about coming back. Um, I know you've thought about that a lot, but it's, uh, it's an issue for experienced doctors at the community and the professional level. So what are your current thoughts on that and um, does the Zurich document link into that at all? 
No, the Zurich document doesn't link into that particular aspect. I think we discussed that last time around. <coughs> the um, current thinking, I suppose, is really that the idea of a magic number, whether it's three or anything else, um, concussions in a, either a season or a career as a reason to restrict participation really has um, gone by the board in this day and age. Now that we have more accurate means of assessment, particularly in neuropsychology, we now have uh, individuals who have uh, long careers now with annual baseline testing and repeated uh, testing after injury until they fully recover. We can be a lot more confident that these people are not doing themselves any long-term damage in that regard. So I think it's an issue of not how many concussions, it's an issue of have they recovered fully. The dangerous situation is where somebody has not recovered, they still have ongoing symptoms, be they headache or dizziness or thinking difficulties, and they return to sport in that setting and sustain a further injury. The danger is not that they're going to have the so-called second impact syndrome, but the worry is they may finish up with long-term or very persistent um, cognitive impairment. So again, it's the quality of the ability to assess recovery that's the key thing. And the elite doctor should have access to an experienced neuropsychologist who experienced in the sports um, area, who's able then to provide that sort of reassurance that their brain function has returned to normal. So as I said, I would, I would emphasise the assessment of recovery um, rather than worry about any particular magic number of re repeated concussions. I think we're getting close to being done here, Paul, and you've worked hard for a couple of hours on these podcasts. Um, I'm going to give you a chance just to reflect and see what else you want to add while I just put in a couple of plugs. Um, you talked about the pre-participation exam and uh, the IOC group, the Medical Commission of the IOC, met to talk about what they call a periodic health review to try to take a broader view. And that group is going to be publishing a similar a consensus statement along the lines of what, what you published and they uh, used a similar NIH process, I believe. And they'll be coming out in September in a bunch of journals. So a heads up to people listening to this before September 2009 that uh, there'll be a nice consensus view on this challenging topic of uh, periodic health review slash pre-participation exam. And if you're listening to this after September 2009, it should be available in a bunch of journals, including BJSM. Um, I think we want to sort of start to flag the um, Injury Prevention Congress in 2011 in uh, Monaco. You'll hear a lot more about that, but uh, the sponsors of this concussion meeting are involved heavily in that prevention meeting in Monaco in 2011. It'll be in April. And there'll be a team physician course ahead of that in Corsica. And uh, there'll be tremendous material there on prevention broadly as well as specifically concussion um, prevention will be part of that and head injury prevention. Um, Paul, um, do you want to add any points for our listeners uh, here? We're targeting the experienced doctors. You know, the broad principles that we've talked about have, have certainly come up in previous meetings and um, this has been an evolving process over a long period of time. There are certainly areas that will be the subject of more research. I'm thinking particularly of gender risk um, in relation to concussion, the paediatric area, um, new uh, 
both virtual reality tools and new technology in the assessment of injuries. So there's a whole range of things which are certainly on the horizon and being studied in different um, parts of the world. But um, we've anticipated with this document that by writing a sunset clause into it, that we will formally review and update this um, by the end of 2012. So um, we've seen over the last three conferences just how quickly this area is evolving and how many people around the world are researching it now. So we would hope that that process will continue and that we'll be able to update this again in three years' time. And Paul, I'm going to um, just thank you and just give you a minute to thank um, the co-sponsors and the collaborators in case uh, they're listening to this experienced doctor podcast alone in a minute. So Paul, my note is to you and to your team um, and to you, Dorak in particular, um, a bunch of people in sports medicine got together and uh, worked really hard to improve outcomes for patients and make sports safer. And I think the academic um, effort and the methods that this group have, uh, under, have used is a role model for all of us in different areas of sports medicine. I think the approach, um, you know, is really commendable, and I think those of us in other areas should look to this method and try to follow it. So it's, it's a credit to you and your colleagues. And uh, I'll hand it over to you for the last words, Paul. Yeah, I'd just like to thank, um, particularly the sponsoring groups, the the lead. Um, organisers, which are the International Ice Hockey Federation, FIFA, the IOC Medical Commission and the International Rugby Board. All these groups sponsored the meeting and have been very active um, over a number of years in this, this field. The individuals, apart from the 28 panellists, who I won't name today, but particularly the co-authors of the um, outcome paper, these were the key people involved in the um, organising committee, uh, for the meeting and so forth. They include Winner Maywissa from Calgary, Karen Johnson from Toronto and Montreal, Jerzy Dvorak from Zurich, Switzerland, Mark Aubrey from Ottawa, Mick Malloy from Dublin, and Bob Cantu from Boston. All of these people contributed an enormous amount um, over the period of time, as did all the panellists who participated and gave their time and expertise in the meeting. So I'd just like to thank all those people who are involved um, as well as the sponsoring groups. And uh, I'm going to thank those of you listening to this podcast. Um, at BJSM, we're really keen to hear from you and how we can improve the value of BJSM across uh, platforms, uh, the web, the print and the podcast. So feel free to email um, Karim Khan um, and uh, that email's karam.khan at ubc.ca. Um, the website is bjsm.bmj.com if you've picked this up on iTunes. And uh, we're looking forward to improving our service to sport and to sports medicine, sport and exercise medicine. So uh, please make it a two-way conversation. Um, I'm going to close here and thank Paul McCrory for his contribution uh, on behalf of his collaborators and colleagues. And um, really thank you for adding this value to BJSM for BJSM listeners. And uh, I hope that this has provided a terrific addition to the uh, Zurich concussion document. Thanks very much.